I thought we would dive into something of a New Year's um, resolution topic or theme. If you're like me, uh, just naturally, I begin at the end of the year to ponder and think about what's happened, what's brought me to um, coming up to 2023. You just become evaluative, whether you do that formally or informally. Um, I just sort of find myself doing it, thinking and looking into this year, I'm always wanting things to get stronger and to have kind of some refresh and restart on some things. And I thought this morning would be good to think about praying and think about praying well in 2023. And that's not an easy topic to discuss when you talk about your prayer life, even as a pastor with time and a way to schedule for me to pray and have that discipline with regularity, I would say that my life might not be so dissimilar from yours in that um, I've had regular sweet times of prayer uh, seasonally, depending on um, sort of the allowance of my schedule, retreats, or um, just times where the pressure comes off, or you find yourself on a trip, or you find yourself in a in a, in a place where you, you can pray, you want to pray, you desire to do that and commune with the Lord. Then there's other times where my prayer life feels more formalized, where I'm always praying. I'm praying publicly, praying before um, events, I'm praying at church, I'm praying with leadership teams, and there is that prayer and praying. Then there's the praying that I do with the eldership, where we pray intercessorily through the directory, but we pray with real prayer requests that you submit that we, we sort of summon from you so we can pray intelligently, and that's part of my prayer life. Um, but I think that, you know, if I really was boiling everything down in terms of my prayer life, my number one joy in praying is when I sense a real nearness to God and a connection in a relational way. And uh, that happens more seasonally um, than always with regularity. And so I'm always wanting that to go well. And um, one thing that I've done over the years is I have worked on this matter of prayer through a sermon that I've delivered over the years. I mean, we're talking over my whole time here. I think I've delivered content that I'm delivering today, but it's evolved content. It's, It's more thinking and thought that I've done in terms of praying in prayer, and I want to share the overflow of that because I want to be able to bring us to a place where we go, okay, this is what praying is all about, and this is the essence of hitting a good stride in your prayer life and in your relationship with the Lord. Nobody's going to pray perfect prayers. Nobody's going to pray perfectly consistently, but we always need a charge in our spiritual life. This semester, I'm teaching a course in our seminary. We have nine students, four of whom I'll be in this class, and it's called Prayer in the Pastor, and I've taught it um, one time before, and it, it puts you in a regimen of praying with accountability, and it's kind of like joining the gym, and it's, it's great, you know, to have that as a homework assignment discipline, but my desire is for it to go deeper than just the discipline and, and have it go into devotion, and for these young um, pastor trainees to have a prayer life that will buoy them up through the ebbs and flow of life and to build that discipline. When I'm doing my best um, sort of regular praying, I do have a a way to do it, a method to do it. I'll share that at the end 
of the sermon, just to give you some application. I was talking to this, um, my wife and I met with a couple last night. We had kids over and we kind of had the adult table, you know, and then the raucous stuff's going on in the other room. But the lady was talking to, to us about how she had never been taught to pray. Nobody ever taken time to just show her how to pray and how to, how to live a consistent prayer life. And, and so I think it's important to do that and try to do that as we all try to figure it out. Uh, one thing to break into this topic of prayer um, that can sort of hopefully loose you or break you free from some lethargy is to do what C.S. Lewis uh, recommends that you do if you're needing to break out of some um, lethargy, and that is to try to solve a theological conundrum. Like, tie yourself in a theological knot and try to get out of it. You know, go there in terms of something that seems unresolvable and just grind on it and think about it and come free. And that can put some fire into our topic. And the, the version of that that I want to um, set before us is this theological equation. If God and since God is completely sovereign over all things, in control from beginning to end of every event, every detail, either allowing things to happen, he's not responsible for sin, we know that, but he allows everything to happen, and then he's involved in everything that's happening. If he's that sovereign, then why do we pray at all? Is this just some sort of soliloquy or play acting that we do where we're just speaking words in the air and God's sort of a dispassionate playmaster that's kind of watching and listening in that's really all about us growing and really doesn't have anything to do with him at all because his will is going to be done regardless? Why pray if God is sovereign? Does the sovereignty of God or learning the sovereignty of God and believing in that, does that dampen our prayer life and should it? It's really what I think happens to prayers who begin to, in a way, misapply the sovereignty of God. They rest in the sovereignty of God in a way that sort of just puts them on pause. Well, God, you got it. I'm out. And the Bible definitely does teach us the sovereignty of God, but I would flip the script and say the sovereignty of God is actually the number one motivator to pray as opposed to the number one dampener for praying, and that's how it should be. What is the sovereignty of God? The sovereignty of God is probably the single most important doctrine that you can believe in terms of spiritual growth and in terms of spiritual life that you live. It should be the air that you breathe in terms of your Christian walk and experience. Number one, you need to know foundationally that you're saved by grace through faith alone, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You need to know the gospel, number one. Number two, in terms of growing, you need to know that God is completely in control of all things. He's sovereign. He's ruling. And his rulership is is big and outside of everything and inside everything at the same time. You see this in Scripture. Psalm 103, there's a lot of passages. Verse 19, he's established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom, you can substitute the word, his sovereignty rules over all. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of the man plans the way. You figure stuff out you want to do, but the Lord establishes the steps. Proverbs 21, 1, the king's all, you can substitute any ruler, any political leader, any governor. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. He's doing all these things. Um, Ephesians 1.11, here's sort of kind of a watershed sovereignty of God verse. In him we've obtained an inheritance, meaning we're saved and it's secure forever. Having been predestined, meaning God predetermined that, predestined according to his purpose of him who works all things, watch this, 
all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything. Not some things, all things after the counsel of his will. Romans 8, 20, 28. Um, for those who love God, God works all things together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God's working everything together for the good. It's amazing to think about even Christ as the second member of the Godhead was submissive to the Father's will. He was recognizing sovereignty as he dynamically lived his mission and ministry on earth. John 5, 19, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, his will, not my will. Job 121, here's a narrative version of that. You remember the, the Sabaeans and the armies and all of this under, the, under God's sovereignty and allowance. He allowed um, Satan and weather and forces to come and destroy everything Job had, even down to um, the collapse of a building onto his children. All his children die And he says, naked, um, Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's sovereign over these events. Genesis 50, 20, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. He was um, the youngest of all the, the sons of Israel and Basically, he was sold into slavery, sold out by his brothers, told to his father that he was dead, and then he was raised ultimately as viceroy over Egypt, this power-dominant place, and, and then his brothers in the providence of God are at his feet and at his mercy, where, his, where jo, um, Joseph could either forgive his brothers and make things right in that way or destroy them. And the sovereignty of God is what melted his heart to forgive. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's sovereignty. God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. These are dominant verses. Listen to these last two sweeping verses of the sovereignty of God. Isaiah forty six ten, Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. It's incredible. It's airtight. Revelation twenty two thirteen. Who is Jesus? He's the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If there's one theologian that has sort of exposed and taught and, and, and made clear the sovereignty of God, it was a theologian, the late um, R.C. Sproul. When I preached this message in 2017, I was talking about the fact that R.C. Sproul had just died. I'm reading his biography right now, written by Stephen Nichols, and uh, it's good. His health uh, declined in 2015. R.C. Sproul had a stroke, um, went in the hospital. He had that garrulous, uh, gravelly, sort of Columbo sort of humor and voice, and you know, was captivating in that way if you've ever heard him speak. And he said, if you're going to write something on my tombstone, I just want you to write, I told you I was sick. Um, He died in 2017, pulmonary complications. But what he should be known for is his legacy on the sovereignty of God. Listen to this quote. If there was one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. If one single molecule is running around rogue, 
How can we trust that God really is going to fulfill all of his promises? He's either Lord over it all or he's not Lord at all. Sovereignty of God, it pops up everywhere. And so it creates a conundrum. Why do we work? Why do we pray? Why do we evangelize? Why do we do the Christian life if God is sovereign? And I'm particularly applying that to our prayer life or our stunted prayer life. Are we resting in a way that's inappropriate in the sovereignty of God? C.S. Lewis, he took this on in an article, If God is Sovereign, Why Should We Pray? It says, since God is good and is going to do everything for his good, then what's the difference in does it make for our praying whatsoever? In this case, you could argue that since God is sovereign, why do anything at all, like breathing uh, or working to put food on the table? The answer here is that these things seem natural to us, the natural order of things, how things are, make chewing food, earning money, sleeping, laughing, everything else normal. And this is even for Christians who embrace that God is ruling our lives from his throne. In other words, he's making the case that as Christians, just like to any human, breathing is normal and working and there's just natural things you want to do and you do and it's part of the normal order of life, that that's how it is for a Christian with prayer. It's just part of the normal order of life. It's what you want to do. It's normal. It's natural. It's the overflow of our spirituality. There's truth in that. But Lewis, as he's brilliant, is also kind of a logician. He's very into logic and imagination. And he's, he, he begins to talk in this article about how the sovereignty of God in praying is kind of like prayers being like a magical superpower where God grants and refuses at his own discretion. He says, quote, when prayer works at all, it works unlimited by time and space. And there's, you know, some beauty in that, some elegance in that, but prayer is not magic. Prayer is not something that we do and throw up and works or doesn't work. It's got to mean mean more than that to the Lord for me to be motivated to do it. Uh, The hyper-charismatic movement, the dominionist people will try to declare things into existence and make all the power us. We are little gods and we're declaring things. And so that's how I get motivated in prayer. The conservative fundamentalist uh, sort of background of Christianity that's more legalistic, they, by contrast, just make prayer all about a discipline and an obligation and a duty, something you fear not to do. If I don't pray enough, that person will get saved. If I don't pray enough, then I won't be blessed. If I don't pray enough, bad things will happen to me. So I'm praying to stay ahead of it. None of that is really what the Bible talks about in terms of describing prayer. That's man-centered praying. It misses the point that God is working in our lives and working within his will and using our prayer in the process. God is inviting you and me to participate in his will as his will is being done. The sovereignty of God, instead of being a dampener in our prayer life, should actually be a motivator in our prayer life. Let's flip the script. Instead of asking if God is sovereign, why pray? Ask this question. Why isn't God's sovereignty the best reason to pray? It's the best reason to pray. It's our ultimate drive and motivation because there are divine outcomes that are guaranteed. And I want to sort of break down why pray because of the sovereignty of God with these reasons. Why God's sovereignty is the reason to pray, number one, there's five of them. Number one, we're commanded to pray. This, by the way, is called a topical sermon. Just buckle up. Okay, you're commanded to pray, commanded to pray. God says, when you pray, pray this way. He said that to his disciples in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Beatitudes. You have the Lord's Prayer nestled in the middle of that. And his disciples are saying, how to pray, how do we do it? And he says, when you do this, I'm expecting you to do this, pray along these lines. Pray these 
tracks. Pray along these tracks and you'll be praying how I want you to pray. Pray then like this, Matthew 6, 9, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's very God-centered. Your kingdom come. That kingdom is the word sovereignty in the Bible. You could, you could um, translate it that way. Your sovereign rule come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the provision, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, working in terms of your own heart and your soul, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's all that heart work in prayer. Matthew 7, a little bit later, he says, Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. So there's the idea of asking for particular things and seeing real prayer requests answered. It's amazing that a lot of times I'll be praying and I'll sort of like be praying for the week on something and then I'll taper, I'll taper off, I'll fall off, you know, I've got like 10% faith left in this prayer. And then God answers that prayer. He's like, you were praying for that big time like four days ago and then here it is. So that happens, but how does that work out in the sovereignty of God? Paul adds to this in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God. You know the different armor, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, um, the gird your loins with truth, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, the helmet of salvation. And then you have two offensive weapons. One is um, the sword, the dagger sword, which is the word of God. You speak the truth. It is written. You're hanging on a truth. But then the very next verse in that whole section is verse 18. And it's prayer, the other offensive weapon we have, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, with all prayer, all times. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Paul was always praying. And he was always praying for the people of God in the churches. All the introductions of his letters kind of hinted that some are very, some hinted this, some are very explicit. Some of his prayers in Ephesians are actually written out So he's praying, he's speaking and talking and thinking through the names of the people in the church all the time and holding them in his heart and praying for them all the time. That was Paul's testimony in prayer and that's prayer life and that's what he urged us to do. 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. And then verse 17, pray without ceasing, meaning there's a constancy to prayer and prayer life. Give thanks in all circumstances For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. It's like pray, be grateful, don't quench. Pray, be grateful, don't quench. That's how we're living, by what we're talking about, by what we're doing. We're lifting prayers to God in gratitude for people, and we're guarding our heart from quenching the Holy Spirit with gossip or discouragement or worldliness or sin. That's, that's the Christian life. How do you get motivated to keep on keeping on with this? Praying's a tall order. It needs to become our normal disposition. Number one, we're to be obedient to do this. Number two, Jesus models an aggressive prayer life. He shows us how to do it by doing it. Remember, there's a couple occasions in the Gospels where he prayed all night. The first one was when he chose the 12, very important at the beginning of his three-year mission and ministry. And then the second time was when he was at the Garden of Gethsemane on the eve of his crucifixion. He was going to be taken away. And he prayed this prayer. He prayed, Lord, if there's any way, 
Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass through where I don't have to do this. I mean, he'd been predicting it. He knew it was coming. He knew it was God's will. He knew not to deliver himself over until it was the appropriate, perfect timetable for him to be delivered over. He had to be the symbolic lamb during the perfect Passover season on that perfectly selected, precise weekend. He was doing all of that. And he comes to the point of crisis where he's sweating huge drops of blood in crisis, falling apart physiologically. And he's saying, if there's any way where I'm looking into the mouth of hell and I'm getting ready to take on everyone's eternal hell onto my shoulders, if there's any way for me to avoid um, this cup of wrath, let it be so. And ultimately, Jesus yields to the sovereignty of God. It says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And his prayer synchronizes with the sovereignty of God. Even God, who is man on earth, had to work through this in his prayer. And he prayed as an intercessor for us in that way as well. Hebrews 7.25 says that he lives to make intercession for us as a high priest, but he was always doing that even while he was on earth. John 17, he prayed that great high priestly prayer, praying for the Jews, praying for believers, praying for all who would believe in the end, praying for our sanctification, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. John 17, this is what he was about, what he was praying for all the time. He was passionate in the dynamics of the sovereignty of God and in what that would mean for our lives. The book of Acts, you find prayers. Uh, You have 120 who are assembled um, pre-Pentecost, praying Pentecost down in Acts chapter 1. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. The half-brothers of Jesus are there. The disciples are there. All these believers are there. It's just 120. It's like a room like this size are all gathered and tucked in, and they're praying. And Pentecost is coming down, but they know it's coming down, and so they're praying in view of the sovereignty of God. Then crisis hits, and throughout the book of Acts, you have people who are incarcerated and beaten and jailed for preaching the gospel. Peter and John are two early ones, and the church gathers to pray for Peter and John to be released from prison. And they were released, and then the prayers hit in Acts 4, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God, and they said what? This is how they title God in their prayer, Sovereign Lord. Sovereignty of God didn't dampen the prayer. It's your will is being done. It's fuel for the prayer life who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. And at the end of the prayer, Acts 4.31, when they had prayed in the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Paul's letters are filled with this. I'm always praying for you. Romans 15, 30, he invites us to join in. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. By the way, that's a Trinitarian verse. You see it there, the Lord Jesus, the love of the Spirit to God on my behalf. Pray for me. He's always beseeching the church to pray for the mission. So first two points. Obedience. Why do we pray? Obedience. We're supposed to do it. We're called to do it. Second, Jesus modeled it. Paul modeled it. The early church modeled it. But thirdly, and this is kind of the coming back to the the debate on the sovereignty of God and praying. We pray as the means to God's sovereign ends. It's kind of a loaded point to think through. A means to God's sovereign ends. Prayer is God's way to involve us in his plan. 
dynamically, not in a soliloquy, not in play acting. We're not just acting out on a stage like puppets or whatever. We're involved. And our prayers are part of that involvement. C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, the slender prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of divine omnipotence. So are we changing God's mind when we pray? No, we're synchronizing with his will. Um, Numbers 23, 19, God's not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and, he, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Jeremiah 15, 1, then the Lord said to me through Moses, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. James 1, 17, with God, there is, he's unchanging, he's immutable. There's no variation or shifting of shadow. He doesn't change like the weather patterns or you know shadows around the earth. He's the rock. But you say, isn't God relenting at times in the Bible, like, it, like with Jonah, where you know the Ninevites, um, Jonah didn't want to preach to him because he knew if he preached to him, then the Ninevites would repent, and then the warning that God promised wouldn't, wouldn't be fulfilled, and the people that, that Jonah wanted nuked on the earth wouldn't be nuked, and so he didn't want to preach to him. That's the story of Jonah. Jonah preached, they repented, they put on sackcloth and ashes, and it, apparently God relented and changed his mind. What does that mean? What about when the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness, made the golden calf, they boiled down all their gold, they made an idol to worship, a little false god, a little version of their version of Yahweh was a golden calf, this is the provider, and then God wanted to destroy them, and Moses prayed and begged God not for him not to do it, and God relented. So what is that? Is God changing his mind or not? Well, all of that is God's will, all the dynamics of that the I'm going to do it, but I'm not, all of that is God's will. It wasn't changing anything at all. It was always going to be that way. But at the same time, it's dynamic. And the prayers are part of the process, part of the sovereign plan playing out. And that's as far as scripture takes it. In terms of totally understanding this thing, we have to leave it with the Lord. But God is conveying himself in an anthropomorphic way. He, he relates to us in human-like ways so we can relate to him. But he's God, and we are the created. He's the creator. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way. He says, listen to this. Our prayers are in the predestination, and that God has as much ordained his people's prayers as anything else. And when we pray, we're producing links in the chain of ordained facts Destiny decrees that I should pray. I pray, destiny decrees that I shall be answered. And the answer comes to me. Just trying to put it together. We're links in the chain. God has his plan. His plan is established. His sovereignty is playing out. And he's dynamically involving us in that process as we pray and he answers prayers and things are working out in our midst. God is immutable. But his unchanging nature does not subtract from the fact that God has designed for us to participate in fulfilling his will. Our prayers are actually the means to God's divine ends. You say, well, is this exciting? Well, hopefully it takes the pressure off. It's not up to you to produce the outcome. It's up to us to participate 
as God's will is being carried out and done. Say, how does that work? Well, listen to this verse, 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence, hear that word, confidence that we have toward him. We could say motivation, um, you know, a strengthened assurance that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we've asked of him. When we're praying in a way that's synchronizing with the way God's will is working out, we see it happen. His will is being done. That's the confidence we have. That's why the early church during its heated crisis where they were being jailed for preaching, went to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, we need your help today. We're calling you Sovereign. Your plan is perfect. We need your help today in the way you're going to work it out. Sovereign. So how does this look? Well, one of my favorite activities to do to sort of de-stress and take my, life, my mind off my life is to swim. And I love to swim, and I swim a lot. And it's an exercise that serves as a little bit of a prayer analogy to me in that when I started swimming, I was more thrashing, and, you know, my legs would drag, and you know, feel like you're going to sink. There's a lot of people say, I can't swim, I'll sink. But I've learned a few things in terms of breath support and body positioning and, and flow and fluidity to the point where you're, you're exerting yourself, but you're resting on the inside at the same time. On the outside, you're going for it. and On the inside, you're calming. And that's a lot like praying and understanding the sovereignty of God. You still exert and pray and want and seek and knock and desire and pray and go for it, but all the while resting in the will of God. And the fact that your prayer is participating in the will of God. You're not trying to change God's mind. You're trying to synchronize with God's mind. You're trying to gear mesh with God. Let him change you. Let him involve you in what he's doing. And we become steadied in that. What does that look like? Well, James 5 is a picture of someone that comes who is desperate, either emotionally, um, physically, wanting healing, wanting help. They've got burdens on their heart. They've got sins to confess. Life is messy and it's hard and they've come to a terminal um, diagnosis. They've come to a crisis of faith, a crisis in their life where they need the, the eldership to come around and lay hands on them, perhaps physically anoint that person with oil and pray over them for some kind of restoration. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's suffering physically or spiritually. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. Listen to this phrasing of this kind of prayer that's answered. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Does that mean everyone is physically healed all the time? I don't think so. But the prayer of faith, I would argue, is when God's Um, will is um, being accomplished, where you're praying for the right things in that moment, biblical things, then God is answering that prayer in a powerful way. It says, and the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins. Is it always important to confess your sins? Yes. Will God always forgive your sins if you confess them? Yes. It says he will be forgiven if he's committed sins. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I think this is more about being right with God, being accountable before eldership, praying in the Holy Spirit and God answering that prayer and promising healing. Maybe it will be in this life, but it's for sure promised in the life to come. Why, where do I get all this? Well, the analogy that's given in James 5 is what clarifies all this to me. 
because it's talking about Elijah. And I've talked about him recently, so I won't belabor it too much. It says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. What does that mean? It means if you're praying by the Holy Spirit, we can never be righteous enough for God's power to rain down. It's praying by the Holy Spirit, praying in a humble way, that there is a powerful effect from that. What does it look like? Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a like, with nature like ours. He's just like us. He was raised up in, um, in that ancient culture in 1 Kings. Um, he was the guy who took on all the prophets of Baal when um, Ahab and Jezebel were trying to cancel God in Israel and they were slaying the, the Baal prophets and killing them off. Elijah stood up on their behalf. He challenged um, the, the rulers, the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He summoned fire from heaven. Fire came and absorbed and licked up the altar that was made where the prophets of Baal failed. But Elijah was just like us. So why were these dynamic things happening around him? It says he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. What's going on? Well, if you read the context carefully, you understand that Elijah is just like us, but he was synchronized with the will of God because God kept speaking to him directly. Now, he was a prophet, so he had that advantage. We are spoken to directly by the word of God, and it is affirmed to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And when we pray according to the word of God, then we're praying like Elijah. We're normal people who are trying to synchronize with God on God's timetable. This is what we see in the storyline in 1 Kings 17, 1, it says, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, he said to Ahab, Ahab was the wicked king. He says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there will never be dew nor rain these years except by my word. 1 Kings 17, 2, next verse. And the word of the Lord came to him. The synchronizing. Elijah prayed. He said, if I pray, the water's, the water's going to dry up for three and a half years. When I pray again, it's going to come out. How did he know that? God was telling him when these things were going to happen. And so prayer was real, and God was inviting Elijah to participate in what God was doing through prayer, but God's will was going to be done, and he was synchronized with that. That's praying by being motivated by the sovereignty of God. That's what makes us pray fervently. Daniel 9 is a similar example. Remember, Daniel was the young Hebrew uh, kid with a uh, teenager with his friends who were swept away by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylonian captivity. Um, and they were summoned away for 70 years. And it was because of the idolatry and sin of the nation. And Daniel grew up there. He had a great testimony, but he had testimony also of praying regularly and with his regularity of prayer he was uh, there were laws that were made for him to be set up to be indicted as going against Nebuchadnezzar and particularly Darius at that point and he was put into the lion's den and he escaped that so he was known as a man of prayer but then the 70 years are just about up and I don't think Daniel knew in his mind he really wasn't thinking about the fact that we're in the 69th year and Babylonian captivity is about to to end until he looked at what the prophet Jeremiah had written. So in Daniel 9, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by the sin of the Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord. So Daniel's going to the Bible. He's going to the book of Jeremiah. To Jeremiah the prophet, must 
pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He's going, what time is it? What's the calendar say? 70 years is just about up. How did he respond to this? Knowing that God was going to bring everybody out of Babylonian captivity, send them back to Israel. The 70 years are up. It's assured to him by opening the the scroll of Jeremiah and going, wow, the timetable is set. We're really going to be delivered. What do you do? Go, well, hakuna matata. I'm just relaxed. It's all chill. We're going home. No problem. Is that what he did? No, no. He let the sovereignty of God propel him into prayer. He called the whole nation to pray. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Confession for what? For the sins that they had done that got him in that place in the first place. Not the sins during Babylonian captivity, but the sins before. He's recalling that. And he says, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We've sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. The passion of prayer came from the sovereignty of God. So not only does the fact that we're commanded to pray, should that motivate us to pray, but also Jesus modeled it, the early church modeled it. Um, But thirdly, we participate in the sovereignty of God to bring about these ends through our prayers. And then point four, we're assured of divine outcomes. God's will is being done, not our will, but God's will is being done. And I don't have time to go here, but you remember in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul prayed three times that the thorn of the flesh would be delivered from his life, whatever that was. And in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it's a uh, It's an interesting testimony, but he's praying in view of the sovereignty of God. It says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But I said, my, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, and I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, For when I'm weak, I'm strong. He's just yielded to the sovereignty of God in his prayer life. In Corinth, he was told by the Lord to go there and set up a mission post for um, a long time. And in Acts 18, it says, The Lord said to Paul, verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you or harm you, for I have many In this city, who are my people? He stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God. In the context, he didn't want to go there, but he was yielding to the sovereignty of God, that God's got his people that are going to be saved there that he didn't even know about. Praying a lot, um, prayer in the sovereignty of God reminds me of preaching in the sovereignty of God or giving the gospel to people. One of the best books I can recommend in terms of wrestling with the sovereignty of God and human responsibility is J.I. Packer's book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's probably the best, still the best book on it. It was InterVarsity Fellowship seminars he gave in London, I think, um, many years ago. And he wrote this. He says, nothing is more stimulus to evangelistic zeal, you can insert prayer, and the effort, and effort than the assurance of success. This is what the sovereignty of God promises, which is the truth of sovereign election 
It's the truth of sovereign election, and it alone can give you this. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God and grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, listen to this, indeed the certainty that evangelism will be fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. You can insert prayer. Their prayer would just be pointless. It would be a waste of time if we weren't assured that God was going to bring about sovereign outcomes. His grace is sufficient. He has divinely appointed ends. Remember when in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas on their second missionary journey, they're preaching. They're preaching to to Jews who are turning away. They're turning away. It's actually the first missionary journey. They're turning away from um, the word and they turn their attention to the Gentiles. In Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen to this phrasing. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How do we know when somebody's gonna be converted? How do we know if our prayer is gonna take root? We don't, but we can pray within the sovereign plan of God and then he just turns hearts and things happen by God's will. Last point, it causes us to grow in our dependence on God. Praying in view of the sovereignty of God is putting our whole self in God's hands. It's believing he's sufficient and perfect. Our hearts are changed as we pray in that yielded submission. We're synchronizing with God. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. He says, prayer is for our benefit. It is our privilege to bring the whole of our finite existence into the glory of his infinite presence. We come to Jesus not to change his mind, but to go into his presence to enter into his presence. We can do it anytime. You should do it all the time in 2023. He'll enter your need. He'll use your prayers as his means to bring about his sovereign ends in your life. All right, I told you I'd give you something practical. Let me tell you about my prayer life. So it's, it's been on and off again. Um, throughout, I've been a Christian since I was 17. And for the better part of a couple decades, I've implemented a plan that I use and I've got books um, in my office, actually on my desk that are just ratty books where I've read through chapters and marked off and marked off and marked off just to read through the Bible. And it's a Bible reading plan that gets you through the Old and New Testament once in a year. And if you do the plan faithfully, you go through the whole Bible once and you go through the New Testament twice. It's called the Robert Murray, Robert Murray McShane Bible Reading Plan from this Puritan that set it up. And it's basically reading four different sections of scripture each day um, throughout the day. And that gets you through. So you're in the Old Testament, you're in the Psalms, you're in a gospel, you're in an epistle, and you just kind of move through. And the reason I like that is because if I'm just trying to read chronologically Genesis to Revelation sometime around Leviticus, if I'm really strong, I get into First and Second Kings or Chronicles and I just die. I just die. It's just really hard for me to keep going. We're not all Nathan Schneider. And we all wish we could be, but we're just not all, we can't do it. And um, it's, it's hard. But, but, I, but when I'm reading something in Second Chronicles, and I know that I'm also going to hit a psalm or, or something from Jesus, it all devotionally ties together. And I see things that are amazing. And 
I study to preach and I, I, you know, pray in that process. But when I'm doing this, it's helped me. And I like having an appointed text, an assignment that I know that is thought through for me so I don't have to invent it for myself. What I've found, though, is it's hard for me to pull out these crusty books and, and do that. Um, and I leverage technology. Technology has been my friend um, in many, many ways. Just I, I never know where I am, so GPS has been a lifesaver. Google has um, intervened and saved our marriage many times. You need as we debate things and say, this means that. Well, let's Google it right now, you know, and then it means both things, and we kind of laugh. All that to say... Uh, with Bible reading, with Bible reading, I will open up my laptop. Um, this is recent. This is in preparation for my prayer in the pastor class. I'm re kind of organizing myself. And I found that the Robert Murray McShane plan will like bring up, you know, miraculously bring up the passages that I need every day and it'll refresh every day on my computer. And so I can scroll through those four genre and, and do it pretty quickly or put it away and then catch up and, and do that. But I also like to journal and I've, I've journaled, I've handwritten journals um, where I've journaled a lot over the years and it helps me focus to be doing something tactile, but I'm left-handed. And so it grinds, it actually hurts me, you know, get hand cramps and stuff and ink all over the place to write. But I found that over the years I type and I type all the time. I type pretty fast. And so I can think and type and journal and pray through that process and reflect on the passages that I'm reading in a way where I'm processing it through. It actually creates great devotional material if you need to share with family or kids and stuff you've processed. That's a way to do it. And I just would commend you find some way that you like doing it. Do what you like to do and do what you can do consistently, whatever works for you. A lot of times when you're teaching and you're accountable to teach, that becomes the path of scripture that you're studying, meditating on, and processing through. It's different ways to do it. The key, the goal of prayer, I would say out of everything, the one thing, the whole thing I'm saying is synchronization. You're synchronizing with God. You're getting with God in his plan as his will is unfolding in your life, in the big picture, and you're praying. And I would say use scripture as you pray. Let scripture be the word of God where God is speaking to you in your heart and it's, it's informing the way and language for you to pray. Don't let the sovereignty of God lull you to sleep. Let the sovereignty of God invigorate you and awaken you to pray. I was a resident director a um, long time ago, 20-some years ago at the Master's College. It was called then, and I was uh, the dorm leader with about 70 men in the dorm. And um, at 3 a.m., um, one, of, one of the men in there, one of the young students came into my room. I used to leave my door unlocked and whatever. I was single at that point. He was, threw himself onto the ground and was crying and wailing because he had just found out news that his sister, his teenage sister, had been thrown from a car and had severe head trauma and would be forever altered, maybe was going to die that night. And so he's crying and crying out for prayer and for help and support. And so I mobilized the, the dorm of men, and, and suddenly they just found themselves in prayer groups all around the dorm. So it was like this all-night prayer vigil, people crying out to the Lord on behalf of their friend and their need, and his need, and sister. And, uh, but one, uh, and it was a good outcome. She ultimately made it. Um, she came to chapel, but she was altered. She survived it. But one of the dorm leaders who um, called his group to pray in a very cavalier way, I remember hearing him down the hall shout this out, and I, it, it turned my stomach because it was the wrong, 
way to look at the sovereignty of God. He basically flew in the face of God's sovereignty and said, no more sovereign prayers. What he meant by that is, this is all up to us. Let's grind it out. Let's pray and make this thing happen. That's absolutely putting all the pressure on you (coughs) instead of casting your cares upon your sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, speak into this moment. Help your will to be done. And Lord, our desire is for her to be you know, rescued and, and for things to be right. But there's all kinds of biblical ways to pray in terms of her own heart and the state of her own soul and God's will being done, his timing being perfect, but we're trusting and we're praying for comfort. But his cavalier, no more sovereign prayers. <coughs> it struck me because it's absolutely wrong application. It's fighting against God instead of resting in God as you struggle. What does this look like? <coughs> I thought of this kind of silly illustration. I use it first hour. I said, should I use it second hour? Several people came up. I said, do it again. So I will. Here we are. Um, I was four years old, I think, when I was given swim lessons. My mother, you know, put me in this outdoor pool setting and all the classes lined up, and we, we were under the instruction of Jim, the teacher. And Jim was big and strong and some young adult, and he had sort of the, you know, the, the blonde beard and blonde hair. And I somehow inverted his name into from Jim to the Jim. He was the Jim, and he was the boss. And so he was teaching us how to kick to him and blow bubbles and do all the stuff you do. And and then after class, we would all line up on the side and um, wait to be collected by our parents. And the morning class would swap out for the afternoon class. Well, somebody from the afternoon class shoved me into the pool. And so I was in the pool, and I was in over my head. I couldn't stand up. So I just remember drowning um, for a little while and looking up at the surface of the water and seeing the sunshine. And somehow, some way, I kicked myself to the wall and made it um, to the wall. And, um, you know kind of got out of the pool. The next day, I showed back up, and Jim, the Jim, had me at the end of the pool, and, and he was teaching me how to... He didn't know I'd been thrown in. I don't think anybody did, but I, he, he was showing me how to make it back to the wall. Well, out of the corner of his eye, and this is at the end of class, the afternoon class was coming. The other class was lined up on the wall, leaving. That devilish, uh, demonized child came back and um, shoved my good friend Neil Porter into the water. So he was the next victim. All I remember was being tucked under Jim's arm and seeing water pass because he was moving so quickly across the pool to put Neil up on the side again. Here's the question in terms of how this analogy plays out with prayer. Um, Neil was drowning and he was fighting for the side of the pool, but his outcome was more secure than mine. I made it to the side by wrestling and fighting my way to the wall. Um, His outcome was secure under a sovereign that was from the outside. Uh, Jim was coming to his rescue to bring him to safety. Here's the question. Would Neil, knowing that help was on the way, would that make his struggle and effort to the side lesser or greater? Would it be harder to get to the wall or easier knowing that, yeah, he's struggling to get to the wall, but there's a sovereign. There's someone from the outside that's going to make certain that he would get to the wall. And I think that's how we are positioned in our prayer life. Yeah, we struggle. Yeah, we wrestle. Yeah, we're in over our head. We're trying to get to the wall. 
but we as Christians know and can rest in the sovereign hand of God that's coming to push us to the edge, to make it secure and safely as we pray. We pray because God is sovereign. We pray to synchronize. We pray with his involvement in our life as his will is being done sovereignly in his care.